We can turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. The Jordan Memorial, Joshua chapter 4. Last time we saw the preparation for crossing the Jordan and the actual miracle of the crossing of the Jordan. And then chapter four tonight, focus on the memorial of the crossing of the Jordan. So chapters three and four go together. I commented last time that Pastor Butler did chapters three and four together. And I said, we'll find out next week if I made the right decision. I did make the right decision. I'm glad we uh, split it up. So we'll look at chapter four this evening. Uh, I'll begin reading at verse one. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priests stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? And you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished. The Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over, for the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And these, those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. But the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan and before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, 
which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. Well, the book of Joshua begins what's called the former prophets. Uh, sometimes in our modern times, we call them the historical books. But remember, they speak to us. It's not just basic history, not just basic facts, but it is God who speaks to us in the former prophets. And the former prophets are made up of four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. You heard me right. Samuel and Kings are actually one book uh, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Certainly that they go together, but they kind of, it's essentially one book. So Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those are the former prophets. And really when we put them together, uh, they're asking the question, how Israel goes into exile. And we see throughout the historical books or former prophets, there is this decline, spiritual decline uh, in the people of God uh, throughout their history. Joshua is positive. There's some good things as they enter into the land, but Judges is negative. And there's a lot of negative in uh, Kings as well, some good in Samuel, uh, but still a lot of problems throughout Israel's history. And the foundation of the former prophets is the book of Deuteronomy. That's why it's called sometimes the Deuteronomistic history. Deuteronomy is that foundation. God had entered into covenant with Israel. And the prophets, when they come on the scene, they use Israel or they use Deuteronomy. They use the law uh, as the, the way to indict the people of Israel for failing to do what God had said. And that old covenant, especially Deuteronomy, is a covenant of works concerning life in the land. It's all about obedience to God that they might have a long life in the promised land of Canaan. And thankfully in Joshua, we see finally the people enter into the land. Joshua 21 verses 43 through 45 is the main thrust, the main idea of the book that God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has given them the land. And the book itself is structured around the idea of entering the, or the, the land itself, uh, and there's four kind of subsections, entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land, and retaining the land. And tonight we finish the section on entering the, the land, which is verse, uh, chapters 1 through 4. So chapter 1, God promised to be with Joshua. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And then we saw in chapter 2 that the, uh, Joshua uh, calls two spies, do some reconnaissance, and that's what we meet Rahab the harlot. They want to see and spy out the land, and the fear of the Lord really has fallen uh, upon, uh, the fear of God has fallen upon uh, the nations or the, the, the peoples who live in Canaan, the nations who live in the land of Canaan. They are fearful. And then chapters 3 and 4, we see the crossing of the Jordan and the memorial of that crossing. Uh, it's a major event in the history of Israel. It's a major event in the, the, the time frame concerning the old covenant people of God. Yet it's something that slips my mind often. And the whole purpose of chapter four is that we remember it. And let's be honest, we forget it probably far more often than we should. And so the focus really is on the idea of the memorial of the crossing in chapter four. And the problem is very clear how God's people can be forgetful of his mighty works. That's been a problem throughout Deuteronomy or a, a warning uh, concerning uh, the future uh, generations. Don't forget the Lord your God. 
Don't forget the Lord your God. Don't forget the works of the Lord your God. Usually when we forget the mighty works of God, it leads us to have a lack of or perhaps no faith in the God of heaven himself. Now, even for the redeemed saints, for God's people in our remaining corruption, not unto uh, uh, um, apostasy, but uh, we can still struggle with forgetfulness of what God has done in Christ, what God has done in our lives. That's why we need to be reminded every week about the gospel. The gospel isn't just for new believers. It's for each and every one of us. We need to be reminded about what Christ has done as he lived, died, and rose again. And it's good for us to be remind ourselves about how and when God saved us, to recall what we once were and what we are now because of what he has done. We need to remember there is the importance of memorial, and these 12 stones provide that memorial for the people of God. So that's the main idea in Joshua 4. These 12 stones are collected as a memorial of the crossing, a memorial of God's mighty works, not just the crossing, but the people have finally entered into the land that they've been waiting for for 400 years. It's a big day uh, in the history of Israel, and yet we don't give Joshua 4 as much fanfare as we uh, probably should. But it's a memorial, it's a remembrance, the people were called to remember, and we'll look at this memorial under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the memorial of the crossing of the Jordan. And secondly, we'll see the fear of the Jordan crossing, verses 10 uh, through 24. So the memorial of the Jordan crossing, verses 1 through 9. And then the fear of the Jordan crossing, verses 10 through 24. So the memorial of the Jordan crossing, let's look at that first in verses 1 through 9. And notice we see the 12 stones commanded in verses 1 through 5. And again, the context is God had said, you have to cross over that Jordan. Well, not even just God had said, but if the people want to get into the land, there is this giant river called the Jordan. And as we see in verses 15 and 16 of chapter three, uh, it was overflowing. It was perhaps a mile wide. It was something that would have been daunting for anyone to try and cross. So they have this obstacle and God has said, I'm going to have you pass over. Uh, on dry land. I'm going to go before you. Here's what you have to do. And it's not just a sign to show his might, although it does show his might, but it's also an affirmation and assurance that I will be with you when you go and fight the Canaanites. If I can stop the rivers, I can help you as you fight some Amalekites. So that was meant to be an assurance and encouragement for the people as they cross over into the promised land. He would fight for them. And we must remember that God's miraculous might doesn't always happen in this way all the time. So it is a miracle. Uh, it's an important demonstration of God's power for the people. And that's why the memorial is important, because God's not going to do it all the time in this way. God still works mightily, but it's sometimes in a lot of ways, especially in our modern times, it is invisibly. What I mean by that is there's no thunder and lightning. Yes, we can see fruits. Yes, we can see change. Yes, we can see dead sinners saved uh, after the, with the evidence, that very thing. But it's not always razzle-dazzle. It's not always stopping rivers. It's not always, uh, it's usually never in that way. It's just the invisible work of God with his word in ordinary ways to save people from their sins. 
but we must remember that miraculous work that Christ has done. We must always remember what Christ did 2,000 years ago and what that means for us. Christ still works. Christ still is saving based upon what he has done 2,000 years ago. And that's the purpose of these stones, to remember what God has done. And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see the command God gives to Joshua. Notice verse 1, and it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over. So the priests with the Ark of the Covenant are standing in the midst of the, of the Jordan River. The people are crossing as they uh, remain firm in their place. So once all the people have crossed over, the Lord tells Joshua, the Lord is directing them. The Lord is guiding them, saying in verse 2, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe and command them. We had a precursor of this in chapter 3, verse 12, and now we're going to see why. Uh, Every tribe and command them, verse 3, saying, Take for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm, and you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. So they've crossed over, and now the 12 men, appointed men, have to cross back into the Jordan and go to the place where the priests are and grab these. 12 stones. Now we're going to see that the purpose for this memorial was so that the people would fear. And the repeated words throughout chapter four, the words command and fear. Don't miss that as we go through this chapter, because fear and command go hand in hand. Those who fear God will do what God has said. Those who fear someone will do what they uh, command and ask. And so God commands Joshua, and remember, God said to Joshua, I'm going to exalt you in front of all these people that they might follow you as they enter into the land. So God said, do these things, and then verses 4 and 5, now Joshua obeys, and now Joshua commands the people. Joshua is speaking on behalf of God to the people. He is that successor of Moses who's going to lead them into the land. And so God commands Joshua something. Now, Joshua commands the people, and the people are going to obey. They're not going to obey in subsequent uh, subsequent history, but they're they're doing good so far uh, under Joshua. And so Joshua calls the 12 men, verse 4, and 12 tribes of the 12 stones, and the 12 men symbolize the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. It's a united people, and it was 12 that shall still include the Cisjordan or Transjordan or Eastern Jordan tribes. it's too bad when I say cis or trans, we think of LGBTQ. I'm unfortunate that's been hijacked, but trans and cis are actually used in the commentaries to describe the, 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 the tribes that settle on the eastern side of the Jordan. So I'm just going to call them the eastern uh, tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And so Joshua commands them, one from every tribe, cross over, verse 5, before the ark of the Lord your God. So God is in the midst. God is in the midst of the Jordan. God is the one stopping the Jordan. The ark is that place uh, where God rules, uh, reconciles, and reveals. And so he is in the midst of them, a sign of of his presence. Uh, He's in the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you should take up a stone on his shoulder. So probably fairly sizable boulder. Had to be somewhat strong to carry it. uh, According to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So God gives uh, Joshua this command. Joshua gives the people this command. 
And again, it foreshadows and shows that they do respect him. They do revere him and they shall follow him when they go into the land. So he gives this command. And then notice in verses six through nine, we see its purpose. Verse six, that this may be a sign among you. Uh, when your children ask in time to come saying, what do these stones mean to you? Again, the mighty acts of God need to be remembered because they're not going to ha uh, happen all the time. There's not always going to be these Jordan type events. And for the most part in the life of God's people, that's not how God operates. You see, God works ordinarily. That is, God works through means. God works through his word. God works through life. It's not extraordinary. It's not miracles. It is a miracle that someone is saved and changed. Yes, I believe all that. But it's God who works ordinarily through his word. As we hear it, as we feed upon it, as we grow, as we interact with people. I mean, as we saw on Sunday in Colossians 3, that what we ought to put on is in context as we interact with others. I mean, you can't be compassionate unless you're having compassion toward somebody else. I mean, that's where we learn that. That's why marriage is a good sanctifier. Having children is a good sanctifier. Uh, having friends is a good sanctifier. All those things are important because that's where we learn all of those things. It's not always going to be this miraculous event, this miraculous thing, this miraculous work. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle, right? I mean, miracles, I mean, the, the meaning of it implies that it happens rarely we do we don't deny that god can't uh, we don't uh, god certainly can do miracles but god works ordinarily through means and so the implication is that these stones are going to be large enough it's going to be a large enough sign uh for the people of god for subsequent generations that when there's a data daddy son scroll near the jordan the, the sun goes dad what's that what does that mean what does that look like what is that uh, what is that? Uh, what do, why do we have these this circle of stones? We don't know how they're set up or what they look like. I don't know what we don't know, but perhaps it was in a circle. Uh, but they look at that. They see that and they go, wow, OK, what what exactly does this mean? Well, the message for the children is going to be in verse seven. Don't forget a the parents don't forget and b here's what you teach your children. And you shall answer them, the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. The Jordan crossing was an assurance for Israel concerning life in the land, an assurance that God would be with them. But it in and of itself is something that must be remembered. Here's what Yahweh has done. Here's his mighty act. He stopped the Jordan that you might be able to cross over on dry land. And as they were walking along the Jordan, they're walking during harvest time when the, you know, the rivers and the valleys were over, uh, uh, overflowing. The, 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 the father could say to the son, here's what Yahweh did. Here's what happened. Now that for the son to believe that, that requires faith, right? He wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have seen that. It requires faith. I'm going to talk about that more uh, when we get uh, to the end of this uh, study tonight. But faith and fear go hand in hand. And faith uh, is taking God at his word, even if we haven't seen the actual miracle take place. And so the miracle happens. 
and it, it is proclaimed and it is taught to future generations. And so that's what they are supposed to be for. That is what the stones are to represent. They're to be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And then verses 8 and 9, the people obey. So good start. God commands Joshua. Joshua obeys. Joshua commands the people, and the people obey. Verse 8, and the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan. As the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up, then Joshua set up st uh, 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So you have two memorials. You have a memorial on the banks of the Jordan, and you have a memorial in the midst of the Jordan. You see that in verse 9? So the 12 tribes, the 12, uh, the 12 representatives grab 12 stones. They take it to the banks of the Jordan. But while the priests are still standing in the middle of the Jordan, Joshua goes in, in verse 9, and he sets up stones, 12 stones. There's a double memorial. And they would have been large enough that the people should have remembered it to this day. Here's what God has done, a double memorial. That's how thick we are. We need two memorials. We need two reminders. We need two things to, to, to smack us in the face. There it is. Boom. We need to remember what God has done. And it perhaps is the case, or at least Gil and Henry suggest, when John the Baptist says, look at these stones in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, they perhaps suggest that it could be these very stones. They could, I mean, that's perhaps, maybe it's a stretch, I don't know, but it is what Gil and Henry suggest. And remember, John the Baptist is pointing to the fact that, look at the might that God can do. Look at the power that God can do. God can raise up from these stones. And certainly God is the one who brings about so great salvation that the Pharisees did not believe, the Jews did not believe, and he is challenging the leaders in Matthew chapter 3. But it was a memorial. There are two memorials, one in the midst of the Jordan and one on the banks of the Jordan River. Now, I do hope the application is clear, uh, but I think one thing we need to take away from what we see in these verses is we ought to remember God's redemptive acts. Remembrance is so very important for the people of God. And when I say remembrance or remembering God's redemptive acts, I'm primarily saying we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we remember the Old Testament acts. Yes, we ought to remember the Jordan. Yes, we ought to remember the Red Sea. But specifically and primarily, we ought to remember Christ and what he has done. Christ lived, died, and rose again. That is the gospel. And there is power in the gospel. There is power in the pulpit. And the reason there's power in the pulpit is because of the message and because of the spirit, but because of the message that goes forth, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ lived a perfect life in his act of obedience, that Christ died as a perfect sacrifice for wretched sinners like you and I. And we must not forget it. We must never forget what Christ has done. We must be reminded of it weekly on the Lord's Day. 
We must be reminded of it daily. We must always think of Christ to remember him in his word and be reminded about what he has done. And what he has done must be told to others. Again, we do not see Christ, but we love Christ. Just like the children were not there when the, the, uh, when the parents crossed the Jordan, so, uh, the, the actual ones who crossed the Jordan crossed the Jordan. We weren't there 2,000 years ago, but we believe it to be true. We take God at his word that Jesus is God, and we believe that he lived, died, and rose again, and we proclaim that to others that they might be saved. So remember the gospel of Christ. But also, it's perfectly legitimate to remember your salvation, to remember when God saved you, to remember what led to your salvation, to remember how you got to where you got to. I tried to remember my own salvation today. I am very prone to forget what led to all the re- or the, what led to me becoming a Christian, but what led to me being saved. We ought not to do that. I had to jog my memory and recall and think about what had happened and all the things that led to it. I did terrible things, and it was through those terrible things that God convicted me of my sin. He saved a wretch like me, and he saved a wretch like you. So we must not forget the salvation God has given to us, that time of salvation. We might not know the exact moment, but remember what we once were and what we are now. But also it's not wrong to remember the times God has sanctified us. When there was a sin that we struggle with and we asked God to take it from us and he took it from us. He delivered it from us. He made those temptations lose their power. We ought to remember that. We ought to recall those times God has strengthened us, God has been with us, God has aided us, and use that going forward uh, in our Christian walk. Davis says, we observe a certain assumption operating in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Namely, that the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. Just as in a marriage, the real threat may not be infidelity, but simply a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person. Let us remember, let us never forget Christ and what he has done for us. So that's the memorial of the Jordan crossing. Let's then look secondly at the fear of the Jordan crossing, verses 10 through 24. Perhaps it's really the result the fear that uh, that comes from the Jordan crossing, but I like things to match. So the fear of the Jordan crossing, verses 10 through 24. Notice the fear of Joshua, verses 10 through 14. Uh, but first in verses 10 through 13, we see the people prepared for battle. So the priests have obeyed, verse 10. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Again, God is going to exalt Joshua in the sight of the people just that they might follow him just as they followed Moses. Uh, being the successor to Moses, although Joshua is not the mediator, but those are some big shoes to fill, uh, to take over after Moses. So God is going to be with him, not just to fight the Canaanites, but also that uh, the people of Israel might respect him. And so he did. They, the, the, the priests obey Joshua just as they obeyed 
Moses. They did all that had been commanded. Uh, and so uh, what was commanded was that Joshua would lead the people, maybe not specifically the stones and all that, but that they would lead, Joshua would lead the people into the promised land. And Joshua does that very thing. And let's be honest, if the priests don't obey, you think the, the, the rest of the people will obey? If one tribe says, hey, we ain't going to follow you, Joshua, do you think another tribe might follow suit? People are sheep. <laughs> People follow. And so it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a, a gift of God that the people are united and following Joshua. Later on in Judges, what, what happens? The people are divided. There's no leader. There's no king. There's this tribe versus that tribe. There's you know Judah trying to work with the Philistines to try and take out Samson. I mean, there is no unity amongst the people, but there's unity here as the people cross over into the promised land. So the um, so the, the 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 priests obey. They're in the midst of the Jordan, doing according to what Moses and Joshua commanded. The people cross over. They hurry themselves across. Uh, verse eleven. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over to the ark of the Lord, and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. So the people get across, um, and now the rest can come across as well. And then verse twelve, we see that the the eastern tribes, uh, east of the Jordan tribes, they cross over. Um, they cross over after the the priests are in the, the the midst of the Jordan. They cross over first because they're entering into enemy territory. Again, God fights for them, but they're going to fight. They don't just walk in with you know no with no swords or no shields or no nothing. Oh, we're just going to no. They still have to enter in and they still have to engage in military warfare. And so they go first. And when it talks about the 40,000 in verse 13, that's just the Eastern tribes. That's the men they had are ready to go. So they cross over. So they've obeyed. They're going to come over and help uh, their, their brethren take the land, uh, just as Moses had spoken to them. We saw that a little bit in chapter 1. Uh, 40,000, verse 13, they go ahead. They're ready for war. So war is in view. They're armed. War is coming. Uh, they're on the plains of Jericho, ready to battle, ready to go. Uh, they're ready to fight uh, 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 with the Canaanites when they enter in. So they're ready to go. God is going to fight for them. They've entered into the land, but they need to be uh, prepared for battle. Again, God will fight, fight for them, but they must fight. Isn't that a picture of the Christian life? I mean, that is Philippians 2.13, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to do. We fight by the power of Christ. We stand fast with the armor of God, with the strength that Christ has given to us, with the might that we have by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we, that's why it says we fight in the power of God, but we fight. We're the ones watching and praying and fighting. We are the ones who are fighting the good fight. As Paul says, the ones waging the good warfare, but we do so in the power of Christ. I know that's hard for us to sometimes get it, wrap our heads around. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that very thing. But if you're struggling with a sin, you pray to God, God, help me as I fight that sin. Now cut that sin off. That is the emphasis. That is the Christian walk. That is the Christian life. We pray to God for strength, and we don't just let go and let God, but we go in the power of God to do what he has commanded us to do. Now, yes, there's sin. Yes, we fall. I get all that. But 
if we understood the power that we have in Christ and the power of the spirit, the forgiveness that we have, I think that would help us a lot in our Christian walk. He strengthens us with might in the inner man. That is Philippi, or Ephesians chapter 3. And we have that power. We have that strength as we walk. But we have the armor of God that we can put on as we stand fast uh, in our Christian walk. So they're ready to go in, act, in literal battle, ready to go for actual fighting the Canaanites um, as they enter into the land. And that's important because it shows that they follow Joshua. Verses 10 through 14 highlight that they followed Joshua, and it affirms what God had said to Joshua uh, in three, uh, uh, in chapter three, verse seven. I will exalt you. Verse fourteen. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him, as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Remember, the sub-purpose of the Jordan is that the people uh, might fear. Joshua, that Joshua might be exalted. And we see that the people obeying him is also a work of God. And again, the commandments, they obey. That's, key. That's one of the key things when it comes to fearing. Do we believe God? Do we believe who he says? Then we do what he asks. And so God asks, they follow. Joshua asks, they follow. 4, 8, 10 all highlights that very thing. And it affirms that God is with Joshua, which we saw in chapter one. And the reason they need to fear Joshua is because a, they need to fear God primarily, but they feared the one who speaks on behalf of God and is leaving are uh, leading them because one, they're a fearful people. I mean, that first generation freaked out concerning the Anakim. They were more fearful of man rather than God most time. So it's a blessing that God has caused this second generation to fear Joshua. And the Jordan River shows that very thing. And the reason the Jordan River parting and crossing shows that very thing is because the people didn't have Joshua for. I think sometimes we forget that when we read the Bible, that we have information that people don't have. I mean, God said to Joshua, here's what's going to happen. And then Joshua has to tell the people, but the people are still looking at the river going, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the people don't have uh, uh, what we see and what we know after the, you know, after uh, they've crossed over the Jordan. So they have to take Joshua at his word. And as they take Joshua at his word, they're taking God at his word. And so they finally, uh, God wasn't directly speaking to all of them. He was speaking to Joshua, and Joshua shows that he really is the leader. God shows them that Joshua really is the leader of the Lord's army, and he will be with them when they fight the, the Canaanites. And the commander of the Lord's army is going to come again in verses 13 through 15. Certainly, it's the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, the, pre the Son of God, the second person, uh, some think, um, Maybe I'm getting ahead, of, getting ahead of myself, but someone appears to uh, uh, Joshua. The man stands opposite to him and affirms that he will be with him. But he really is leading the Lord's army. Joshua is leading them into the land of Canaan. And they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So they feared Joshua. But most importantly, they need to fear God. Verses 9 through 24. The crossing is completed. Uh, sorry, verses yeah, 15 through 20, uh, 15 through 24. The crossing is completed. 
verse 15, then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, uh, command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So the banks were stopped up. The banks have overflown. The miracle is complete. The people have crossed over. And then we see the purpose. Again, remembrance. He's repeating the remembrance so that we don't forget. Again, we need to have things repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Verses 19 through 24. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. The people have finally entered into the land of Canaan. That should have more significance, you know, for us as we read about the history of Israel. Again, even for me, like I'm reading this. Oh, yeah, I, I need to pay attention to these very things as I'm forgetful. We also need to pay attention to the date. Anybody know the significance of the date in verse 19? The 10th day of the first month. Turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the house is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor that next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb, so on and so forth. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. The Passover comes about five days later, uh, but the beginning of the Passover and its preparation is the 10th month or the 10th day of the first month. So 40 years since the people came up out of the land of Egypt, they have now entered into the land of Canaan. As Davis says, they were once a slave, now they are heirs. They were once slaves in a land that was not their own, now they have a land uh, that is theirs, that God has given it to them. And then in 510 of Joshua, you see, they keep the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So much more celebration to come when we come uh, to chapter 5. But that day when they cross over is 40 years to the day uh, when God institutes the Passover and says what day you need to prepare that Passover lamb. So days even help, days help us remember sometimes. And the 10th day of the first month was an important day in the history of Israel. So they're in the land, and then they set up the stones for more remembrance. Uh, verse 20, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, again, he reminds them what it is. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? So again, 
Inquisitive child asks, what does that mean? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. So not exactly the way it's said in verse 6 and 7, uh, verses 6 and 7, but still recalling what had happened. So twice in this chapter, they recall what had happened, that they have crossed over on dry land. And notice verse 23, who does it for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you, uh, before you until you'd crossed over. It's recalling God's mighty work. And it's not just to recall God's mighty work with the Jordan, but notice as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we, he, we had crossed over. Again, like with the dates, he's also having the people remember what happened with the Red Sea and what happens with the crossing as the people leave the land of Egypt and as the people enter in the land of Canaan. The people must never forget where their strength comes from. The people must never forget what God has done for them. The people must never forget God's might and God's power that he, they would revere and worship him alone. There's certainly still work to be done in the land, but the people have entered in and recall all of that God has done. And Davis says, apparently this sort of miracle will be infrequent. That's why you know, we need the remembrance and the stones. Yahweh's standard method of retaining his people's fidelity is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness and teaching of those particular acts in which he had already demonstrated his care for his own. So much like we already said, Christ lived, died, and rose again 2,000 years ago. That message still has power. Christ still works. But we weren't there. We didn't see that cross, did we? We didn't see him come out of the grave. We didn't see that. But yet we believe because there's power in that message. There's power in the gospel. There's power in the word of God so that we might know it and remember. And then notice in verse 24 that the Canaanites might fear and that Israel might fear. But all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that all the earth might know who God is. We saw that with Rahab's confession. The people are scared. They heard what God had done with the, you know, the, the parting of the sea. Who, whose God does such a thing like that? And then we see in chapter 5, verse 1 and following, how the Amorites are freaking out. And the Canaanite kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea are concerned because of all that had done, how the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan. Their hearts are melting. There's no spirit. They're fearful because God of Israel, Yahweh of Israel is fighting for his people, and they are fearful, and this is a servile fear. They're fearful of what's going to happen. They don't put then their faith in him. Rahab does, though. The God they seek refuge from, or she see, they need refuge from, she finds, or they need uh, um, protection from, she finds refuge in. But they, uh, the rest of the Canaanites do not do that very thing. They're going to be slaughtered. Uh, they're going to be destroyed. Remember, too, they're not these like innocent people. They're terrible, awful people, and God is using judgment uh, upon them. So we must get over our modern delicate sensitivities concerning that. Uh, they're awful, terrible people, and God is bringing judgment upon them. Certainly God does save Rahab, uh, but God is demonstrating his righteous justice. So they are fearful in the land. They are fearful of what God has done. But notice it's not just for them. It's also for Israel. That you may fear the Lord your God 
forever. So the Anakim may be in the land. There may be giants in the land with biceps and swords and spears and could break you in half just by looking at you. Then you don't need to fear them because God is with you. He is the one who is mighty and strong. He is the one with an outstretched arm. And certainly the remembrance of the Exodus ought to instill that in their minds. God is with them. They need to be strong and of good courage for God is with them. God needs to be their fear and their dread and nothing else. Gil says, uh, with this memorial, who upon the sight of them, the memorial stones, would call to mind the power and goodness of God. When we hear the gospel, we ought to recall to our minds the power and goodness of God, which would serve to keep an awe of his majesty on their mind, a due reverence of him and his greatness, and engage them to fear, serve, and worship him, who by such acts as these had abundantly showed himself to be the only true and living God, and the covenant God of them, his people, Israel. This was a reminder for them, don't go after Baal, don't go after Molech, don't go after the Asherahs and the Ashtoreths, don't do that very thing. God is your God, and he is the one to be feared. Now, we all know what they do. They do not fear the Lord God <coughs> most high. And I have to admit, sometimes I've struggled. What does it mean to fear God? What does that actually uh, look like? Certainly the idea of reverence, the idea of recognition of who God is, is very, very important. But I think one way to think of it is in contrast. We need to fear God versus fearing man. And most of the time we fear man and we obey man rather than obey God. We do what man says because we're fearful of persecution, perhaps. We're fearful of what they might think rather than fearing God and doing what he has asked us to do. And so when we come to fear God, uh, a filial fear, a faithful fear, is a fear that recognizes and takes God at his word to recognize who he is and what he has done for us. It's a, a recognition that he saves, a recognition that he is good, but a recognition he is almighty. And we come and we bow before him. We come and we worship him acceptably because he is a consuming fire. We come before him with reverence and with awe, even among churches and Christians. So often people want to make God less scary. But in reality, to have a proper fear of God, we need to put him in his place and us in ours. And so often we reverse those places. Mm -hmm. So often we make God in our image rather than recognizing we have been made in his image. And if we are redeemed, we are redeemed in the image of his son. There should be joy. There should be uh, uh, um, peace and all those wonderful things. But that is a rejoicing with trembling. And the people of God who have been redeemed know this God by faith. And as we know this God by faith, the application for us here is let us fear the Lord our God forever. Let us never grow weary of learning about who he is and what he has done. That's why theology proper is important. 
Again, people like, is theology practical? Yes, because it puts you in your place and God in his. It teaches you that God is the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You are finite, temporal, uh, temporal, and changeable. You are those things. You are not invincible. You don't control the world. You have very little control of your life. God is over all things. And we ought to worship him and praise him and give him the due that he deserves, especially as his people. And that's why remembrance is important. Remembrance and fear go together. If we remember God's might, if we remember God's miracles, if we remember God's gospel, why then should we fear man? Isn't what David says in the face of enemies and threats? Why should I fear man? Why should I be afraid? Why should I be fearful of those who scoff at the Lord God most high? So fear and remembrance go together, but fear and faith also go together. And really fear is taking God at his word and doing what he says. I mean, isn't this Ecclesiastes? What's the end of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. What has been repeated in chapter four? Fear God, obey God. I mean, Ecclesiastes. I mean, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 summarizes uh, uh, Joshua chapter four. That is, we believe God in a world of enigmas and sorrows and sadnesses and vanities, and we trust in him. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but here's God's plan for your life. Do what he says. And I can say that as a Calvinist, as one who believes we are saved by grace, because I believe there's the doctrine of sanctification. And if we've been redeemed by Christ, we ought then to honor Christ. And so we ought then to fear him and do what he asks of us. I feel like Calvinists, we always have to explain. I'm not saying you're saved by works, right? Like we always have to explain that. You guys know what I believe. You know my understanding. I don't think I have to explain that all the time, especially in a context like this. Here's what we are. Here's who we are. Here's what God commands us to do. That is fear. We believe the work of God done through Christ for our salvation, even though we don't see it, but we then do what God asks of us because we fear him above all. In our Christian life, we must obey God and that may lead to unfun situations. Is unfun a word? I don't know, but it certainly uh, didn't have the little line when I was writing it in. But it may lead to unsavory, painful situations with unbelievers who try to intimidate. Isn't that the essence of persecution? That they want us to fear them rather than God. And we must obey God rather than man. Come what may and we must obey god even before that time comes a lot of people like to say i'm ready to die for god great are you ready to live for christ now are we ready to do i remember jim said that and this stuck with me pastor butler we all want to say we're ready to die for christ we're ready to die for our lord and i really hope so but until we're in that moment until we're in that situation until we actually have a gun to our head we need to pray beforehand that God will give us the strength to say, yes, of course, I'll die for Christ, but also to practice now. And the way we practice now is by living for Christ now. And living for Christ now is fearing God and keeping 
his commandments. And one thing we ought to trust, and this is where we'll close, is that he will lead us to that promised land. We have it in Christ already, but we long to possess it when Christ comes back. And this is where Exodus 15, 16, I think, can help. 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Exodus. Uh, sorry, 16, 17, and 18 of Exodus 15. This is after the Red Sea, verse 16. The fear and dread will fall on them, that is Canaan. By the greatness of your arm, you will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. We live in a fallen world, but will he not lead us to that promised land? May we remember that. May we remember him. and May we fear him all the days of our life. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you that you are so long-suffering with us when we are forgetful of your mighty works that you have done. Thank you for that gospel of Christ who lived, died, and rose again. Thank you for what he did as the one who lived a perfect life, obeying the law in its perfection, the one who was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Uh, Thank you for the benefits that have been purchased by him, that we might have life in him and all because of what he has done. And even though we do not see you, O Lord, we know that we love you and we pray that we would love you uh, by keeping your commandments. We pray that we would fear you. So often we fear man rather than you. So often we fear ourselves rather than you. So often we uh, exalt ourselves and revere ourselves rather than you. And we pray that you'd forgive us for violating those first four commandments, especially that third commandment. Uh, May we not take your name in vain, but may we revere you. May we approach you with reverence and with awe, but may we do so with rejoicing and rejoicing and hope. Uh, and peace, but also with trembling before you. May our demeanors be aright according to what your word has said, and may we take you at your word. May we fear you. May we trust what you have said, uh, and may we honor you come what may. And we know that we need your strength to help us with this, for we are so very weak and so very feeble, but you are our strength. You are our might. May you be our fear and our dread. And may we obey you rather than man in those sticky, uncomfortable, uh, life-threatening situations. And we're thankful that you shall guide us and keep us in those moments. You've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you that you are leading us to that celestial city. And may we uh, take you at your word concerning that promise, just as Christ has come, he shall come again. And so may we be a people of faith. May we be a people who remembers, uh, and please forgive us for the times we fail in this. And as we are reminded of our failures and reminded of our weaknesses, uh, may we be reminded of Christ and the forgiveness that we have, and may it spur us on to be remembering you all the more. So be with us now as we go out into into our various vocations. Strengthen us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.